Well, good morning. My name is John Carroll. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Covenant. If I haven't had the chance to meet you before, um, it's actually good to be up here. Uh, it's been a while since I've preached. I think it was uh, Easter Sunday. So uh, it's nice to be back in the saddle. Um, if you've uh, been here for the past several weeks, you know that we are deep into a message series called Her Story, uh, where we're talking about Jesus, women, and the church. And we're very grateful for a church in Canada called The Meeting House, uh, led by their pastor, Bruxy Cavey, very cool dude. Uh, earlier this year, they did a message series by the same name, and uh, they offered many of their resources so that we can start and continue the conversation about gender equality here in El Dorado. A couple weeks ago, Brian Johnson gave a message uh, that was very thoughtful and compelling about how husbands and wives should uh, mutually submit to one another in a way that allows their marriages to preach. And last Sunday, Corey Grease from the Yakima Nation was here and he shared his story and his experience about being a Native American in the United States today. Uh, wasn't it great to hear from Corey? How many of you danced? I mean, how, how many of you, was that was a first, all right? Maybe if you didn't grow up in the Pentecostal church, uh, maybe. The, um, so that was a first for me. I never danced, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, okay, so I wanted to start this message by uh, touching on a couple ideas and then reviewing our hope for this series. And so first I'll touch on complementarianism and egalitarianism. Uh, Amber talked about this in the first week of the series. It's been a while since then, so I figured this would be a nice little refresher. And so complementarianism is the belief that men and women are called to different and complementary roles within marriage and or church life, including the idea that only men can hold specific positions of authority in the church and in the family. And egalitarianism is the belief that men and women, while different in complementary ways, are invited by God into equal opportunity for gifted leadership and service within marriage and or the church life. And what I want to say to our complementarian friends is that we egalitarians are not simply bending to the winds of our current culture. We're just trying to follow scripture. And as it relates to this topic, we think you're wrong. And I want to say to the egalitarians out there that not all complementarians are just trying to preserve some good old boys club that is sexist and misogynist. But they're trying to faithfully follow scripture and they think we're wrong. But despite the differences, we can still be family in this. And we can appreciate each other's love of scripture while at the same time teach what we believe scripture is saying. So here's our hope for this series. One, if you're a complementarian, we hope that we'll change your view of women leading in the church. We want to call you to repentance. And the Greek word for repent is metanoia. It's kind of a funny word. It's called metanoia. And it literally means change your mind. We want to change your mind about how you think of this. 2,000 years, we believe, is long enough for women's voices to be silenced in the church, where 50% of the Imago Dei, the image of God, has been prohibited from using their gifts to lead. So we hope to change your mind based on Scripture. However, number two, if we don't change your view, 
we hope will change your attitude about those who believe differently than you. I hope that by the end of this series, if we don't agree on this topic, you'll at least be able to appreciate an egalitarian approach to Scripture. And on the other hand, I hope egalitarians will be able to appreciate the complementarian viewpoints as well. And then lastly, if you're a person who says, no, I disagree with egalitarian views. I don't think women should be pastors, even though there's one leading this church right now. Okay? If you say, I don't think women should be pastors, and I'm here to argue and debate about it, okay? if we don't change your attitude, then I hope we can help you change your church. And I would be happy to help you find a better place to worship on Sunday mornings. Now, I know this sounds a little edgy, okay? but hear me out on this. I'm not saying if you don't agree, then get out of here. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is, if you just want to be argumentative and antagonistic about this topic, well, that bumps up against a more fundamental issue, which is the unity of Christ that the church is meant to experience together. And the same goes for egalitarians. If you're antagonistic against complementarians, well, then, well, we need to have the same kind of conversation. Because that also bumps up against the fundamental issue of unity in Christ. We can disagree on stuff. That's okay. But only in charitable and loving ways. So, if you have a problem with any of that, then please come talk to me or to Amber afterwards, okay? Now, I want to briefly present five essential points that Amber talked about in the first two messages of the series as a way to further set the stage for what we're going to take a look at today. And these are points that address a biblical worldview of women in ministry alongside men. And so real quickly, here we go. We're going to sail through these. So first one, men and women are equally made in God's image and are called to be co-rulers equally over creation. Second point, the first mention of male authority over women is connected to the curse of the fall in Genesis 3. Patriarchy is the world's backdrop of the Bible, the mess God is working with, and so that is not God's ideal for humankind. Number three, Jesus brings the new covenant, a new way of being in relationship with God that rebukes the curse and recaptures the best of our relationships in the Garden of Eden. Jesus also teaches against a worldly approach to valuing hierarchy and power struggles. You know, if you spend any amount of time following Jesus and studying his teachings in the Gospels, you know that Jesus was constantly flipping the ways of the world upside down. He had a vision for an upside-down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first where things as small as a mustard seed turn out to be ginormous trees, where we experience death in order to find new life, a better kind of life. And for a very long time, us guys have been the ones who have held all the power. And it's time for us to lay it down so women have a seat at the table too. Number four, the sign and spiritual gifts of the new covenant are egalitarian, without question or qualification. And the sign is baptism, 
And spiritual gifts include leadership. Now, we looked at Romans 12 a few weeks ago where Paul says this. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given to us. If your gift is to lead, do it diligently. That's in Romans 12, verses 6 and 7. And there is no hint in the teachings of Paul that are, there are two different gendered categories for the gifts of the Spirit. The gift of leadership can be given to women and men. And if you have it, you should use it. In fact, this is pretty fascinating. The book of Romans was written to a church that Paul had never been to before. He had never visited that church. Some of Paul's letters were part of a two-way conversation between Paul and specific churches. Letters such as 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, where there's been questions asked and problems shared with Paul and this, about stuff that was happening in the church. And what we see are Paul's replies. So we need to read those differently because it's like reading 50% of a transcript of a phone conversation. Therefore, we need to do a little bit more digging to truly understand what's happening at that time and what Paul's instructing the church to do about it. And having said all that, Romans isn't in that category. Paul isn't writing to address problems or questions. He's writing the church to Rome to offer an introduction to his theology. You see, the Romans would have never had the chance to read 1 Timothy. They would have never known, hey, we need to remember to separate this gift list into male and female categories. They're hearing Paul's theology for the first time. And they're hearing that all gifts are for all people as the Holy Spirit determines. And then here's the final point, the fifth point. In Christ, we are not to be separated according to race, class, or gender. And yet, there are a handful of passages in the New Testament that at first reading seem to teach the opposite. They seem to say, that's all well and good, but there are just certain positions in the church that women cannot have. Now, and there's a, few, there's a slide with a few of those passages that are up there. There we go. And unfortunately, we don't have time to cover all of these today. But fortunately, Brian Johnson covered the passage in Ephesians 5 a couple weeks ago. And Amber's going to talk about the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 in two weeks. And so today, I'm going to spend the time that we have remaining to talk about what most complementarians believe is the creedal text that prohibits women from teaching in the church and being pastors, or at least serving in an authoritative position over men. It is a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we are going to walk to this verse, verse by verse. Okay? And as we prepare to explore the text, we need to be aware of our own biases that inform our life in the world around us. There was a pro football game played on September 17th, 2015 between the Denver Broncos and the Kansas City Chiefs. And as many of you know, I'm a huge Denver Broncos fan. And uh, the Broncos were losing by 14 points in the first half and had climbed within seven points with only a few minutes remaining in the game. And Denver managed to score the tying touchdown with 36 seconds left. 
And then miraculously, the Broncos forced the Chiefs to fumble on the ensuing position, possession. And uh, the Broncos picked it up, ran it in for the winning touchdown. Broncos win 31-24. Woo, that's right. Now, if you ask any Broncos fan, their bias will lead them to tell you that their version of the story. They would say the Broncos co completed a colossal comeback. Okay? Now, however, any self-respecting Chiefs fan and their bias would say the Chiefs had a colossal collapse. Not a colossal comeback by the Broncos, but a colossal collapse by the Chiefs. So our bias absolutely influences the way that we interpret and tell a story. And we need to be keenly aware of that, especially when reading Scripture. And then we need to invite people who have other viewpoints to the table to share their stories so that we don't walk around with our own blind spots. So here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Paul has been talking about prayer. He's been talking about the gospel, uh, talking about God becoming human, and Jesus giving his life as a ransom for all people. And these are beautiful truths. And then he applies them in very specific ways, which is interesting. He talks about the centrality of the gospel in verses 5 and 6. And then he arrives at specific applications that are rooted in the fact that there are ways in which people at Timothy's church are in danger of missing the gospel and how it applies to their lives. You see, Timothy was a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And we know a lot about the city of Ephesus and what was going on there. And just by reading First and Second Timothy, we know a lot about the specific problems that were going on in the church. Paul begins his letter of First Timothy by saying this. I am writing to you, Timothy, to address the false teaching that is creeping through your church. And then as we move through First and Second Timothy, we see that not only are there false teachers that are running around, but they're specifically targeting women. And women are eating it up because women didn't have the experience uh, of education like men did. And if there are any Jews present in Ephesus, which is a Gentile territory, the Jewish males had Torah school their entire childhood. But the women did not have access to that. The men held the advantage in their education. So false teachers are everywhere and they're targeting women in their homes. And the women are unwittingly passing this along, woman to woman, house to house. And that's how it was happening. In fact, there's a line later in 1 Timothy where Paul says to Timothy, watch out for old wives' tales in chapter 4, verse 7. And that phrase originated in the 50s. But not the 1950s like you might think. Like in the 50s, as in 5-0, the time at which this letter was written. And this phrase literally means the tales that old wives get distracted by. And old women were targeted and being taken advantage of by false teachers. And one might think, wow, that's not a good look for women. To which I would say, you know what, that's not a very good look for men either because they were the ones doing the deceiving in the first place. So Paul is addressing some gender issues here while combating false teaching. And then he says in verse 8, 
Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. He says, all right, fellas, you guys love to argue with your mouth, maybe even with your hands. You're so angry, you're about to get in a fist fight. Well, I want you to take those hands and lift them up in prayer. Men, this is when you're at your best. So here, Paul is addressing men's anger. And let me ask you something. Do you think just because Paul addresses the guy's anger, that means that the women and their anger issues get a pass? No. Paul's rebuke of anger here is applied to both men and women. So even though it applies to both, he's highlighting the men. And I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that in a moment. So now he turns to the women and he says this in verse 9. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Within a first century context, especially within an Ephesian culture, most attire would have been similar for your average man. Now women, especially women in upper class, had the ability to dress very differently. They could spend extra money on finer clothes and fashion and jewelry in order to make a statement when they went out to say this, I am a matron who deserves respect and honor. I'm not a slave girl. I'm not a lower working class citizen. Because women were very much abused and mistreated in that day. They say, I rise above that. Treat me with honor. And they had the money to invest in fashion. There was also more variety of fashion for women than for men, which is still kind of true to this day, isn't it? And so that was a temptation. Paul says coming into the church, hey, ladies, I get it. I get it. You want to dress up and look good, but you got to take it down a notch or two. And here's why. James, the brother of Jesus, teaches the same thing in his letter. He says, those who have money to dress really well should dress down when they come to church. Isn't that interesting? Because we don't want to create a glaring difference between the haves and the have-nots and the rich and the poor. Because the poor can't dress up. So the rich have to dress down. Well, maybe the poor could dress up if they spent a ton of money in order to fit in with rich people. But that's not a good use of their finances. That's going in the opposite direction. So he says, no, when you come to church, dress down. It's the great equalizer. And Paul says something specific here to target women because that was an issue in their day. With James, he says it to every Christian. So just as we said, angry arguing is wrong for all Christians, even though Paul specifically references men, wouldn't you say that's also true for this teaching? Dressing in a way that sets yourself apart, that draws attention to yourself, that puts yourself above others. If we lived in a culture where that was primarily a temptation for men, don't you think Paul would have dressed it for the men? We don't say that women are told to dress modestly, therefore men don't have to dress modestly. No. 
you would say, this is just good Bible teaching for everyone. In fact, we see it treated that way in other books of the Bible, but Paul is addressing something specific. And the specific issues did run along gender fault lines within this Ephesus church in the first century. So women, be modest. And then he says in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Again, we've been told this is all prohibition. So we say, ah, Paul's telling the women to be quiet and submitted. But you see, that's actually just the way a student should learn. School teachers, we have lots of teachers in this room. Okay, don't you agree? How much more effective would you be in the classroom if you didn't have to stop and and, and quiet the chit-chat every now and then? We need to celebrate the fact that Paul is saying, hey, women, you should learn. And don't do it like the men have been doing it in an argumentative, grabbing-for-authority kind of way. You should respect the teacher. You should be quiet. Don't argue I just want you to learn. And I think Paul would have given the same instruction to men. Hey, fellas, I want you to learn in a submitted and quiet way. But here he is addressing the civic issues with women. And we'll learn more about that as we read on. So he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Up until this point, we've seen how Paul is responding to specific issues within the culture of Ephesus in his day. But here's the point where our complementarian friends would say, now, this has nothing to do with the context within that culture. Okay? This is a once and for all principle. Women are never allowed to teach in any authoritative capacity within the church. And I would say that does not fit best with the direction of the text. Paul is continuing to address specific issues within the Ephesian church. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority. And here's one of the clues. It's right in the verse. Paul talks about a woman assuming authority or taking authority over a man. You see, he doesn't use the normal word for authority. In fact, there's a word for authority that's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. It's this word called exousia, exousia. Paul uses it over and over again when talking about authority. It just means to have authority over. And when he addresses it here, he switches and he uses a different word that he doesn't use anywhere else in his letters. In fact, no other author uses it in all the Bible. It's what scholars call a hapax legomenon. It's kind of a funny term, kind of a fancy term, hapax legomenon. And this word is only used once in Scripture by Paul in this instance. Now, why does that matter? Because usually when you're trying to figure out how to interpret a word, what the root meaning is, we'll typically ask, well, where else is it located in the Bible? And that'll help us interpret it and translate it properly. And you can't do that with this word because it's not used anywhere else. It's not normal authority. 
We can at least say that. And there's something different about it. And so when this happens, we have to go outside of the Bible and see how it's used in other writings of that time. And what we find is that this is a word that is a few level, levels higher than aggressive. It is a unilateral seizing of authority instead of authority that is granted. It's seizing authority as opposed to having authority that is granted. The word is not exousia, the normal word. The word is authenteo, authenteo. And it comes from this autos, just meaning the self, and entea, meaning to arm or to be armed for battle. In other words, it means someone unilaterally arming themselves for a fight so they can seize control. It's an autocrat, so uh, without any care of submission. So something that is happening with women who are being led astray by false teachers and they're arming themselves to take charge. It's like they're saying, hey, it's a new covenant. It's egalitarian, and we've been oppressed for so long. It's our time now. And Paul says, hang on, ladies. You're making things worse. This is not the way to do it. Quit trying to create a hostile takeover. By the way, if men were the ones doing that, wouldn't Paul have said that to men? Authentio is just wrong whether you're a man or a woman. In this context, it was the women who needed a warning. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority, seize authority over a man. She must be quiet. Stop trying to dominate and be quiet. You haven't had the same privileges as men. Now is your chance to learn. At this point, our complementarian friends can say, okay, so far so good, but look at the next verse, John. Paul doesn't say, I'm giving you this instruction because, well, look at the mess of the church in Ephesus. He says, I'm giving you instructions because look what happened to Adam and Eve. And he roots his argument in the creation narrative. Doesn't that tell us that Paul is making a rule for all time as opposed to something that's addressing a particular issue in the church? And let's read on, starting with verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Paul says, you're not equipped. Don't seize authority. Instead, begin to learn. Remember what happened to Eve and her deception. It's an assumption for us to say Eve's deception is because of her gender. That's an assumption. We know Eve was a woman, but did being a woman cause her deception? Did that create an inherent weakness in the overall gender? Or is there a bigger lesson that applies to women in this context about a deeper transcultural lesson? And I think at this point, a complementarian reading of this passage would say, there is something about women by virtue of their gender, as demonstrated by Eve's deception, that should prohibit them from holding positions of teaching and authority over men. 
Complementarians believe Paul's saying, remember Eve, she was a woman, and that because of her gender, it applies to your gender. And an egalitarian reading of this would say, there is something about Eve's deception that teaches us a transcendent, transferable, and transcultural principle about leadership today. But it's not that women are the problem. It's that those most susceptible to false teaching should not teach. And this leadership lesson is applied along gender lines in Paul's day, but may be applied differently in different cultures and contexts. Now, yes, in Ephesus in the first century, that was women. But that may not be the case in every culture and every time. Eve received the Torah, meaning the law of God, in a second-hand fashion. So what does that mean? Well, Paul points out gender isn't the issue. It's order of creation. That's what Paul says here. Adam was created first, and then Eve. Go back and think about that. That's what Paul's saying. Again, I think our complementarian friends project into this. Yes, order of creation. Adam was created first because he should be in charge. But there is nothing in the text that says that. In fact, the flow of the Genesis narrative is that God saves the best for last. God starts with lower life forms, and then animals, and then mammals, and then males, and then females. As you read through the rest of Scripture, you find out that God always pushes back against the cultural assumption that the firstborn is always in charge. And that isn't it. God always flips the power dynamics upside down. So when someone says, Adam was created first, you see Paul saying that he should be in charge. I think no. There's a worldly bias at play. There's that word again, bias. There's a worldly bias at play that God is constantly undoing with, throughout Scripture. Somebody had to get created first. Adam was created first. Then as soon as he was created in Genesis 2, God says that, um, or Genesis 2 says that God gave him the Torah or the law. With this command, don't eat from that tree. And there's no record of God telling that directly to Eve. And what would make sense as we read the rest of Scripture is that God delights in partnering with people who are working on his mission. God always works in that way. It's true. God directly told Adam because there was no other person to tell, no other person to partner with. And then there's just no record of how Eve knew. But it would make sense in the greater scheme of Scripture that it was Adam's job to pass along the commands to Eve. And that doesn't have to assume authority. It's just order. So Eve's knowledge of the law of God concerning the tree was one step removed. And that always sets you up to be potentially easily deceived. And we know this when we see how Eve quotes it back to the serpent. She says, did God really say? And then Eve says, well, here is what God said. And so she get, kind of gets it half right and half wrong. 
It's always easier to be confused when you're not directly learning for yourself. And this is not to say that God set her up. It says God partners with people. And you may say, well, that led to a weakness. Well, it may be a weakness for Eve to be deceived. But what about Adam's weakness for just being blatantly disobedient? Yes, human beings have weaknesses. But the lesson here is, hey, brothers and sisters, don't solely rely on someone else's efforts for your spiritual instruction. Remember what happened to Eve? Yes, God will introduce you to his word through someone else. Absolutely, you always start out in Eve's position. Think about it. A Sunday school teacher, maybe a a, a children's minister, a children's pastor, maybe a lead pastor, maybe your mom or dad, you always start out in Eve's position of learning God's word through someone else. And then you get to the point where Paul says, like, like he says to the women, learn, learn directly and grow or else you will be in Eve's situation. Why do I also believe that this is not an issue of gender? Because Paul uses the same warning based on Eve in other places to warn the entire church, both men and women. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he's not just talking to women here. He's not saying, hey, ladies, remember, you're more easily deceived like Eve. He's saying, hey, Corinthian church, both men and women, because of what's going on in your church, you're all in the position of Eve. This has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with us not leaning into Scripture and learning and growing directly for ourselves. And in closing, real quickly, here's the last verse. This is verse 15. It says, But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Paul is saying, turn to Jesus in childbirth. Place your faith in Jesus. Why? Because going into labor and having a baby in that day was very dangerous. It's kind of hard for us to comprehend in 2019 because we have access to modern medicine. But in that day, women were literally putting their lives on the line by getting pregnant and having babies. Now, something to notice in this verse up here is that there's this shift from the singular she to the plural they. Paul is saying she, the wife, will be saved or brought safely through childbearing if they, both her and her husband, continue living in faith, love, and holiness through propriety, which means decency or respectability. I really wish I had more time to spend on this particular uh, verse of this passage, but I'm afraid we're out of time. And I hope this was helpful. And there's a lot to take away from this message. 
And there's one last thing to remember and implement into your spiritual life. One thing to take away. What Paul says to the women in the first century, you should go and learn in quietness and submission. I think he's still saying to us today, both to women and to men, start learning. You have the privilege of having a Bible. There's a good chance that you have multiple Bibles in your home. And you have access to dozens of translations right on your smartphone. That goes everywhere with you. So I want to encourage you, maybe even challenge you. Spend time reading and praying and thinking and talking about God's holy word and how it applies to you and to the church and to this community and beyond. And then live it out. Live it out. Embody the gospel story everywhere you go. Okay? Let's pray. Father and creator, every single one of us are created in your image, male and female. We are the Imago Dei, your image bearers. As it says in the creation story, you consider us very good. And within us all, you have implemented your spirit and have gifted us with talents and abilities that allow us to partner with your ongoing work here on earth. As it was with Adam and Eve in the garden, we have fallen short of your glory and have work to do when it comes to repairing what has been broken. As we examine this topic of women in your church, would you help us to do the hard work of overcoming our biases and exploring the deeper meaning of the passages written throughout scriptures? May we dig into your word by picking up the Bible and reading and learning. May this be a time of unity and mutuality for us all. May we live out our faith everywhere we go and may we sit with and reflect on what you've said here to this day as we continue to wear the dust of our master rabbi Jesus following in his footsteps amen well at this time I would like to invite our ushers forward as we prepare for our morning offering And really, that is my prayer um, for us this day and as we leave this place that, that we can be in a posture of surrender. I think there's something beautiful about the Christian practice of surrender, to let go of control, to let go of our biases. And this is, all a time, uh, this is also a time for us to let go of our resources and place our faith and trust in God. So as you do that today, if you're not literally on your knees in surrender, envision yourself on your knees and surrender to God in a posture of humility and trust. And so let me pray. Well, thank you, God, for uh, what you are doing in this church. I thank you for uh, this space and this time to give thought to the life that you're calling us to live to live in a posture of 
surrender. Oh God, we love you and we trust you. And may the gifts that we give, these tithes and offerings, be a reflection of that trust. And we pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.